An awning had been erected over the gravesite to shelter Wilson and the friends and family who made up the funeral party. The rain became heavy and thudded against the cloth. Onlookers saw the president tremble as he wept. Those near at hand saw tears on his cheeks. Afterward, the mourners moved back to their cars, and the spectators, a thousand of them, dispersed. Wilson stood alone beside the grave, neither speaking nor moving, until the coffin was fully covered. With the death of his wife, Wilson entered a new province of solitude, and the burden of leadership bore on him as never before. His wife had died on Thursday, August 6th, of a kidney illness then known as Bright's disease, two days after Britain entered the new war in Europe and just a year and a half into his first term. In losing her, he lost not merely his main source of companionship, but also his primary advisor, whose observations he had found so useful in helping shape his own thinking. The White House became for him a lonely place, haunted not by the ghost of Lincoln, as some White House servants believed, but by memories of Ellen. For a time his grief seemed incapacitating. His physician and frequent golf companion, Dr. Carey Grayson, grew concerned. For several days he has not been well, Grayson wrote on August 25, 1914, in a letter to a friend, Edith Bowling Galt. I persuaded him yesterday to remain in bed during the forenoon. When I went to see him, tears were streaming down his face. It was a heartbreaking scene, a sadder picture no one could imagine. A great man with his heart torn out. Later that August, Wilson managed to get away to a country home in Cornish, New Hampshire, called Harlequinden House, a large Georgian residence overlooking the Connecticut River on which he held a two-summer lease. Wilson's friend, Colonel Edward House, came to join him and was struck by the depth of his sorrow. At one point, as they talked about Ellen, the president, his eyes welling, told House that he felt like a machine that had run down and there was nothing in him worthwhile. The president, House wrote in his diary, looked forward to the next two and a half years with dread. He did not see how he could go through with it. There were crises on all fronts. The United States was still in the grip of a recession, now in its second year. The South in particular suffered. Cotton, its main product, had been transported mainly on foreign vessels, but the war had brought an acute shortage of ships, whose owners, fearing submarine attack, kept them in port. The belligerents, meanwhile, commandeered their own merchant ships for military use. Now millions of bales of cotton piled up on southern wharves. There was labor trouble as well. The United Mine Workers of America were on strike in Colorado. The preceding April, the state had sent a force of National Guard troops to break the strike, resulting in a massacre at Ludlow, Colorado, that left two dozen men, women, and children dead. Meanwhile, south of the border, violence and unrest continued to plague Mexico. Wilson's great fear, however, was that America might somehow find itself drawn into the war in Europe. That the war had begun at all was a dark amazement, for it had seemed to come from nowhere. At the start of that beautiful summer of 1914, 
one of the sunniest Europe would ever see, there had been no sign of war and no obvious wish for it. On June 27th, the day before Europe began its slide into chaos, newspaper readers in America found only the blandest of news. The lead story on the front page of the New York Times was about Columbia University at last winning the intercollegiate rowing regatta after 19 years of failure. A Grape Nuts ad dealt with warfare, but of the schoolyard variety, extolling the cereal's value in helping children prevail in fistfights. Husky bodies and stout nerves depend, more often than we think, on the food eaten. And the Times Society page named dozens.